This episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast is sponsored by Indeed. This year has challenged businesses across the globe to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. Indeed is here to help you finish 2020 strong. Indeed is the number one job site in the world, and you can get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Peter. Terms and conditions apply, and this offer is valid through December 31st. Well, we just kicked off the final month of 2020, but before I get into what happened on the first day of December, I want to talk about what happened during the month of November, which came to a conclusion yesterday. The Dow Jones was up 11.8% in November. This is the best November for the Dow since 1928. So you got to go back to the roaring 20s to find a November that was as good as the one that we just had. Now, as far as any month, November of 2020 was the single best month for the Dow Jones since January of 1987. And 87 was also a boom year for stocks, of course, until we had the bust in October of 87. That was the famous stock market crash. But the reason the market crashed was because it was so high. It had such a big run, and January 1987 was part of that run. Of course, not just the Dow, uh, but all the indexes, the S&P and the NASDAQ, they had their best months since April of this year, where we had that huge rebound off the March COVID lows. The S&P and the NASDAQ picked up 10 and 11% respectively during the month. Look at the Dow transports. It had its best November since October 2011. Uh, Here's another statistic. Philadelphia Semiconductor Index, the Sox, best month since March of 2003, right? That was during the dot-com bubble days, early in that bubble. Uh, The industrials and the financials, they had their best month since April of 2009, right? Coming off the bottom of the 2008 financial crisis, The only one that really makes sense fundamentally is that the uh, XLE, which is an index that tracks energy stocks, that had its second best month ever. And, you know, energy is still way down. So energy should have had a good month and it's still cheap. But the rest of it, this is all bubble. And of course, November included the first ever close of the Dow Jones above 30,000. Uh, So that was a record high. Also, big rally, record high in Russell 2000. Talked about that on this podcast already. Also, while stocks were booming, we saw a mini bust in gold. Gold dropped by 5% during the month of November, obviously taking gold stocks down uh, by a much larger percentage. And this was despite a weakening U.S. dollar. Uh, The dollar index slipped about 1% during the month. But even with a weak dollar, we saw weakness in gold. Everything was prompted by risk on. Everybody all of a sudden wanted to sell the safe havens and and buy the riskiest assets of all. In fact, Bitcoin, the riskiest of the riskiest assets, made a new record high in November and did one better uh, today. And I'm going to put Bitcoin aside for the minute. I'll circle back and talk about Bitcoin Uh, later on in the podcast. But 
everybody was embracing risk and shunning whatever was perceived to be a safe haven, which is why the dollar was sold, but why gold was sold even more aggressively. And the reason people think that there's no reason for a safe haven anymore is because we now have all of these COVID vaccines in the pipeline. And so COVID will soon be a a problem of the past. And so since the markets are forward looking, the markets are now discounting all the great things that are going to flow from a COVID vaccine and we're pricing them in right now. So we're getting this huge rally. The problem is the market was already high before we got the news of these vaccines. It's not like the market was still near the March lows and everybody uh, had discounted all of the problems of COVID. And now we can start pricing that out of the market because we had a vaccine. The market had already fully recovered before anybody even talked about a vaccine. So now we have a rally when the market was already near the highs before the rallies. So the vaccines simply caused a very expensive market to get even more expensive. But is the U.S. economy in great shape because of these COVID vaccines? Not at all. I mean, neither is the global economy. Clearly, we would be better off if we didn't need a COVID vaccine because we never had COVID. But we're now having this huge rally because we now might have a vaccine for a disease that thus far has had no damage whatsoever on the markets. The markets are not lower because of COVID. In fact, they're higher. And the reason the markets are higher and the reason they've rallied since the vaccine got nothing to do with COVID. It's all because of the Fed. It's all because of other central banks, not just the Fed, but it's the way central banks have responded to COVID. Their prescription to cure COVID is printing a bunch of money, right? Inflation is the the cure for whatever ails us. And that's what we have. That's the prescription and massive money printing, massive government spending. That's why the market was so strong. And that's why it continues to go up because the market realizes that it doesn't matter if COVID goes away, the monetary and fiscal policies that resulted from COVID are here to stay. In fact, they're going to be expanded, especially here in the United States, because we took on so much additional debt to fight COVID. Now the problem is the debt, not the disease. The disease that we really have is excess debt and excess money printing. And the Fed's cure for that is to print even more money so we can go even deeper into debt. And of course, the the fundamental problem here is government's believed it was their responsibility to insulate everybody from the economic pain that might have otherwise resulted from a COVID-led downturn. But that is not what the government is supposed to do. To the extent that the economy is going to have a recession and that recession causes people to have pain, the government needs to allow that pain to be felt because that pain is going to result in people changing their behavior, modifying the decisions that they make to reflect economic reality, right? If somebody is losing their job 
We want those people to cut back on their spending because they no longer have any income, right? If the government is no longer getting as much tax revenue because people are no longer as employed or they're not spending money, we need the government to adjust to that reality. If its revenues are down, it needs to bring down its expenditures in line with its diminished revenues. The economy needs to adjust to the reality of COVID and how people are altering their their spending patterns and their consumption patterns because of COVID and then let people and businesses make decisions based on this new reality. But the Fed didn't want that to happen. The government didn't want that to happen. So they printed all this money so that people who lose their jobs could keep on spending even though they didn't have any jobs. But you know, part of the problem is when you have a job, supposedly you're productive. That's why you're employed. You're helping to produce goods or you're helping to provide services. So you're adding value and you're getting paid for the value you add. But if you just sit at home and get a check from the government, you're not adding any value whatsoever. The problem is government doesn't seem to understand the difference between money that is actually earned by being productive and money you get just because the Federal Reserve or some other central bank conjures it out of thin air. When you're productive, you're helping to grow the economy. When the Fed prints money, all they're doing is distorting the economy and increasing the cost of living. But it's because the governments intervened so much and stimulated so much that we're now in so much trouble. When I talk about pain, think about actual physical pain. Think about your body, right? What happens if you sprain your ankle, right? Well, now if you put weight on your ankle, it's going to hurt. And so what your body is telling you is don't put weight on your foot. Sit down, relax, you know, allow your ankle to heal. Don't keep walking on it. If you didn't have any pain and you could just keep walking on a sprained ankle, then you could end up doing a lot more damage to it. So in a way, the pain is good because it sends a message to you that there's something wrong with your foot or your ankle. And now you've got to allow it to heal. Keep your weight off it while it's healing. You know, think about a football player. Sometimes they're in a game and they get injured, right? And they've got some pain and they can't play. And the coach shoots them up with some kind of drugs so they don't feel the pain anymore. And now they don't feel the pain, well, they can keep on playing. But the problem is that can do a lot of damage long-term to the player because now he's going to be exacerbating an injury. He's playing on a leg or a foot that he shouldn't be playing on because the pain that he would have naturally felt would have sent a signal, hey, take a rest, you know, you're, you know, don't play. But the drugs inhibited that signal and allowed the player to do more damage to his injury. And that's exactly what the Federal Reserve or other central banks and governments are doing. They are numbing up uh, all the consumers and the businesses so they don't feel the pain that they should be feeling and they keep on spending and, and making decisions as if nothing bad had happened. And so at this point, the greater damage to the economy is not the damage from the virus itself, but the damage from the monetary and fiscal policy that was put in place to supposedly numb us from the pain uh, of, of the virus. And so that doesn't go away. The cure for COVID doesn't do anything to cure that problem. In fact, that problem is now self-perpetuating and is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's why nobody should have been selling gold 
based on these COVID cures. The outlook for gold has never been more bullish than it is right now. And as a matter of fact, I think that there's a pretty good chance that the low for this correction happened yesterday. We had a pretty good day yesterday as far as gold starting near the lows and recovering most of its losses. And gold stocks were relatively firm all day. They opened down with the price of gold, but they were being bought all day. And at the same time, the media was flooding uh, the internet and the airwaves with negative stories on gold. Record outflows supposedly from gold ETFs. Investors are getting rid of their gold. They don't need the gold. Uh, There's no reason to have a safe haven. Everything is great. COVID is cured. In fact, even the the Bitcoin hype uh, was being juxtaposed against gold. I mean, look how much a Bitcoin is going up relative to gold. I mean, so what's the point of having gold? No one needs gold. Everybody is selling their gold to buy Bitcoin, which of course they're not doing. Uh, People aren't selling their gold to buy Bitcoin. But I bet there are people who are buying Bitcoin with money that potentially they should have put into gold. But I doubt people who actually own gold in in any big way were moving it into Bitcoin because the two assets have absolutely nothing in common despite the fact that the Bitcoin uh, hodlers and pumpers want to create the false impression that they do, and the media certainly helps them in that respect, they have nothing in common. Instead of comparing Bitcoin to gold, they should be comparing Bitcoin to other highly speculative assets. After all, Bitcoin is not a store of value. It's not a safe haven. It is highly speculative. So they should compare it to those type of assets. To try to just oppose it to gold makes no sense. In fact, what they were trying to say was that Bitcoin was taking market share away from gold. It's not. I mean, maybe it's taking market share away from lotteries or sports gambling or casino betting or something like that. Or it's possible that some people who might otherwise have been day trading, you know, momentum tech stocks, maybe some of these guys are in Bitcoin, but I don't think it's taking any real market share away from gold. I mean, clearly it's not taking any industrial market share away from gold because there's no industrial use. It's not being used in jewelry instead of gold. Uh, Central banks aren't buying it. So it's not being used as a monetary reserve in place of gold by central banks. And I think to the extent that any investors are buying Bitcoin rather than gold, it's a tiny fraction of the market that barely registers on the radar. So that type of gold is dead, Bitcoin is the new gold, that type of backdrop to yesterday, I think put in a pretty good bottom for the price of gold. And in fact, gold did rally almost $40 today Back above 1800, we're about 1815. Silver was up a dollar 37, almost back to 24 dollars. So a very big rally in in gold and silver today. And I think there's a good chance, as I said, that we have now seen the the lows for this pullback, and now we're headed back up to new highs. In fact, if you look at what happened in the U.S. dollar today, that's a big story. And this could also be a big catalyst for the price of gold. The dollar index got clobbered. We actually settled, I think, below 91.20. This is the lowest the U.S. dollar index has been since April of 2018. And in fact, if the dollar index were to drop about 3% more from here, we would be at a six-year low. 
And I think we're going to do that during the month of December. I mean, I think the dollar chart is looking horrible. And what could make it even worse is what's happening in the Treasury bond market. We saw a pretty big down day today in Treasuries. The yield on the 10-year is back up to 0.934. Now, that's still pretty low. But if you look at a chart, if we break back above a one handle, meaning a full 1% yield, we could see a lot more selling. The yield on the 30-year now is getting close to 1.7%. Again, still very low, but when you have as much debt as the U.S. Treasury, you need those yields to stay low. If they're no longer ultra low, then we've got an ultra problem. And in fact, what's going to happen at the Fed, if U.S. Treasuries come under some real pressure, and they should if the dollar continues to fall, because after all, Treasuries are IOU dollars. And if people want out of the dollar, in many cases, that requires that they get out of U.S. Treasuries because that's where they're keeping their dollars, in Treasuries. And so if you get all this selling in Treasuries, then the Fed is going to have to print more dollars in order to artificially suppress interest rates. Because normally, if there's a lot of people selling Treasuries, Treasury prices are going to fall and then bond yields are going to rise. That's going to be a problem for an overly indebted economy. And so in order to artificially suppress those bond yields and keep interest rates semi-affordable, the Fed has to interfere in the market and do more quantitative easing, create money, and buy bonds. But if the dollar is already weakening because nobody wants dollars, and now the Fed adds to the supply of the dollars that nobody wants anyway, then it puts even more downward pressure on the dollar, which conversely causes the Fed to have to create even more dollars to buy even more bonds that now the public wants to get rid of because the Fed has printed more money. And then the process continues and it ends in collapse. That is where we are headed. A monetary meltdown, a dollar crisis and a U.S. sovereign debt crisis is what's looming in the horizon. And the best safe haven from that is going to be gold. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc now i know there's a lot of you who think that it's going to be bitcoin that bitcoin is going to be the safe haven there is not a chance that that is going to happen as i just said Bitcoin is a highly speculative asset and it is rising on hype. Part of the hype is that Bitcoin will, in fact, one day emerge as a safe haven, even though it doesn't have any of those characteristics today. People are speculating on what Bitcoin may become. But in the meantime, it's a speculation on what might happen. It's not an investment on what already has happened. Gold has been money for 5,000 years. Bitcoin has only existed for a little over a decade. So you don't have any long-term history uh, to rely on. You simply have the current mania. 
You know, the last time Bitcoin got up to near 20,000, within a year, it was back down to 3,000. So how does somebody buying Bitcoin today when Bitcoin is almost at 20,000 again? As I am speaking, Bitcoin is just over 19,000. It almost hit 20,000 this morning. And by the way, I think within an hour of Bitcoin almost hitting 20,000, then it almost hit 18,000. It almost had a $2,000 drop in, in, in the span of an hour. I mean, what's safe about that? And how do you know the next time it drops 2,000 points in an hour, it won't keep dropping? What if it drops 10,000? What if it drops 15,000? There's no way to know for sure. This thing is highly speculative. In fact, the reason that Bitcoin actually rallied up, I think, to, to such heights yesterday was the, the rumors over the weekend or the story that Guggenheim uh, had put in a request to take one of their funds up to 10% Bitcoin and not Bitcoin itself. They were going to buy the GBTC, which is the Bitcoin trust and 10% investment would be like $500 million. So now people are speculating that they're going to put $500 million in a GBTC. I don't think there's any way they're actually going to do that. Even if they ask for permission to do that if they want to, I don't think they'd actually be dumb enough to do it. Now, who knows why they're even asking for permission? I mean, maybe it's part of the pump. I have no idea. But I seriously doubt they would actually follow through with that. But that was the rumor, I think, that helped send the price higher. And I think it's ironic that you hear a lot of these so-called experts talk about how it's so difficult for institutions to buy Bitcoin and therefore they buy GBTC. Well, if Bitcoin is so difficult to buy, why does it have so much value? The whole selling point of Bitcoin is that it's decentralized. It's easy to buy. You don't have all these third parties involved. It's supposed to take all of that complicated process away. If you're basically saying that, hey, all these people want to buy Bitcoin, but it's too difficult, they can't figure out how to do it. The only way they can do it is to buy this overpriced trust that trades at a huge premium and charges you 2% a year, which is by far a higher storage fee than you would ever pay to have anybody store your gold. Remember, part of the argument for Bitcoin is that, well, you have to pay to have your gold stored. Well, if you buy Bitcoin through GBTC, well, you're paying even more money to store Bitcoin with a third party than it would cost you to store your gold uh, with a third party. So building up a case for GBTC destroys the case for Bitcoin. But this irony is apparently lost on everybody who discusses it. But that was part of the reason it went up. And then, you know, you have CNBC, you know, they put the, the Bitcoin ticker now is back on CNBC, that little bug in the corner. The last time CNBC decided to put the price of Bitcoin on on the screen was three years ago when it went up to 20,000 and they kept it up there for a while. And then at some point as the price was collapsing, they took the, the bug away and now it's it's back. It seems like that's a great contrarian indicator. Whenever CNBC decides to feature the price of Bitcoin up on the screen, that's when you want to sell. And the question is, how far is Bitcoin going to have to fall this time before they quietly remove uh, the price from their screen? But in the meantime, they're not serving the interest of their viewers. They're serving the interest of their advertisers. I mean, Grayscale is pumping the hell out of this. In fact, they got the Drop Gold campaign back again, running congruent with their other campaigns. So now I'm just seeing nonstop ads on CNBC uh, for Grayscale about dumping gold and buying Bitcoin and buying Grayscale. And they have one guy after another coming on all the big wigs 
uh, from all the crypto companies are coming on CNBC talking about 50,000, 100,000, a million, 500,000. They got the uh, the Winklevoss twins on there. Nobody is on there saying anything negative about Bitcoin. I mean, I think CNBC has sunk to a new low in journalistic ethics, financial journalist ethics, uh, in, in pumping uh, uh, Bitcoin up and trying to legitimize it so its audience will buy it uh, so that uh, its buddies or its advertisers uh, can cash in and, and dump what they're pumping. And in fact, one of the interesting thing too is about this whole Bitcoin rally is I remember there were a lot of these pumpers that were telling everybody as soon as Bitcoin makes a new high, as soon as we get you know above the resistance, there's going to be this whole group of momentum investors, right? They're out there. They're waiting to buy. They're waiting for a new high. And as soon as Bitcoin can make a new high, then they're going to rush in and buy. And Bitcoin's just going to go to the moon, right? As soon as it gets, you know, above, you know, or gets near 20,000, takes out the high, then it's just going to the moon. I thought it was interesting that as soon as Bitcoin made a new high, they chopped its head off. It wasn't that you had this whole new influx of buyers wanting to pile in. You had a bunch of old investors looking to cash out. That's what happened. So you have to ask yourself if you're a Bitcoin hodler, right? And you just sat back and watched Bitcoin make a new high. Who sold it? I mean, why didn't it keep on going up? Obviously, somebody was looking for an opportunity to get rid of those Bitcoins. Who was selling? Where were these Bitcoins coming from? To me, I think that all of that hype about all of the momentum buyers that were going to come in, that's just talk to try to keep the hodlers on board, right? The big guys who want out don't want to compete. So they have to make sure they get all that FOMO, all that fear of missing out so that people don't sell so that they can. Because if everybody tries to cash out, then the whole thing implodes. So the only way the real insiders can get out is if they can keep everybody else on board and then sucker in enough new buyers so that they can get out. In fact, ironically, the buyers that everybody is hoping to sucker in are the institutions. And I think this really is what amazes me that they potentially think they can get away with this. But this is what they're saying. They are hoping... If they can manipulate the price of Bitcoin up high enough so that the returns are so staggering that the big institutional money will have no choice but to hop on board, right? They can't sit back. And to an extent, right, I I can see the rationale for for this because, yes, a lot of institutions have done some pretty stupid things, right? They've they've jumped on a lot of fads uh, in the dot-coms, let's say, where they probably held their nose and bought overpriced stocks just because they couldn't take it anymore because they were losing out to the funds that did. And so the idea is that anyone who doesn't buy Bitcoin is going to so underperform those that do that they're going to have no choice but to pile into Bitcoin. Otherwise, they're going to be left behind. Except ain't going to happen. There's not going to be enough funds that take positions in Bitcoin that the ones that don't do it are going to be pressured into getting on board. I mean, Bitcoin is not part of the index. Nobody is going to be judged poorly because they underperformed Bitcoin. And there's not enough funds, certainly no mutual funds are going to buy Bitcoin. I doubt any endowments or pension funds are going to buy it. You just have a couple of hedge funds that might get in there and that's going to be it. So we're not going to have this big rush of institutional money that's going to show up late to the party 
and to volunteer to be the bag holders so that all the little guys who got in early can cash out. I mean, that is the opposite of the way bubbles traditionally work. I mean, first, the bigger sophisticated money gets in and it's the retail investor that's the bag holder. They come in at the end, not the opposite. That's what Bitcoin is hoping to do, create an upside down pyramid and allow the little guy to cash out to the sophisticated, supposedly smart institutional money. I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, that's what they're trying to do, but I don't think they're going to succeed. 2020 has been a very challenging year. And despite the fact that it's almost over, those challenges are likely to continue in 2021. That's why you have to be at your most efficient when it comes to hiring. You got to make sure you hire the right person for the job and make sure that that person can do the job that you're hiring them to do in the most efficient way possible. There's a lot of new rules and regulations that are coming that are going to make it even more important that you've got the right staff for the job because staying competitive is going to be increasingly more difficult in an increasingly regulated business environment. Indeed searches through the millions of resumes in its database to help show you great candidates instantly so you can spend your time wisely. In fact, according to Indeed data, more than 80% of employers get a list of qualified candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job descriptions the moment they post a sponsored job. With Indeed, you never miss out on the best candidates. According to Indeed data, candidates invited to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to apply to your job than those who only see it in search. 73% of online job seekers in the U.S. visit Indeed each month, according to Comscore. Total visits. So it's clear Indeed can help you get the quality higher that you need when you need it. That's why more than 3 million businesses worldwide are already using Indeed. Right now, Indeed is offering my listeners a $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more qualified candidates will see it fast. So try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com Peter. This is their best offer anywhere, so make sure and snag it. Go right now to Indeed.com Peter. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. We also had a lot of news today. Earlier this morning, we had a joint press conference with Fed Chairman Jerome Powell and Secretary of the Treasury uh, Stephen Mnuchin. All right, these guys were a joint uh, conference in front of uh, the Senate, the U.S. Senate. Now, first of all, I never like to see the Chairman of the Fed and the Secretary of the Treasury do anything together. I don't like when they testify together. It just doesn't look good, first of all. If there's supposed to be a real separation, if the Fed is supposed to be independent of the U.S. Treasury, these guys should not be in the same room. I don't even think they should talk to each other. I mean, they make a big deal over the fact that they do, and that's why we have so many problems. It's because they have such a cozy relationship that we have all these problems. I mean, the government knows that they can borrow as much money as they want, and the Fed's just going to monetize it. In fact, the Fed is now egging them on. Powell is saying, come on, run up bigger deficits so I can monetize them for you. It's not even a question of whether or not the Fed's going to play ball. The Fed is the one that's trying to get the ball game going. They're like, they're hosting the game. And it's going to get even worse when uh, Janet Yellen is 
the Secretary of the Treasury, because she's even more buddy-buddy with the Fed than Mnuchin. I mean, she just came from the Fed. She was just Fed chairman, what, four years ago, three, four years ago? And now she's going to be Secretary of the Treasury? So it's going to be even worse uh, when she gets on board. And I'm going to get to uh, Biden's press conference after I finish discussing this uh, committee testimony that took place today, because Biden uh, made it official now that he has nominated Janet Yellen to be the first uh, female uh, secretary of the Treasury. But getting back to this uh, joint press conference with Powell and Mnuchin, I want to just highlight some of the lowlights of this conference with respect to uh, some of the statements that, that were made. So in the first place, both Powell and Mnuchin were taking credit for uh, their efforts, and they were congratulating Congress, the senators, for their efforts uh, with the CARES Act and all the things that they did to help revitalize the economy or stimulate the economy. And as I said earlier in this podcast, it is the unprecedented monetary and fiscal response that has actually done the most of the damage, that the the damage created by the government's cure is far greater, at least economically, than the damage created by the actual disease, right? So despite the fact that all these guys are taking credit for all the great things they did, they actually need to be accepting responsibility for all the horrible things they did, because everything they've done has backfired, and the problems are now much worse because they they tried to solve them. So one of the, I think, more humorous comments, and of course, a few uh, senators touched on this topic, but one in particular, I forget which senator it was, asked uh, Fed Chairman Powell if the Fed would take some responsibility for helping to reduce the wealth inequality gap that we have in this country. And the irony of, of this question, I mean, first of all, it's the Fed that has to accept responsibility for helping to create the wealth inequality gap. The reason the gap is as wide as it is, is because of the Fed. It's because of the Fed's monetary policy, 0% interest rates, quantitative easing, that asset prices are so high. And it's inflated asset prices that is responsible for the lion's share of this disparity. The growing inequality gap is a direct consequence of the Fed policy. Yet instead of saying, hey, are you going to accept responsibility for causing all this inequality? The senators think the Fed should be responsible for solving the problem. They don't even understand that the Fed caused the problem. And the greater irony is that the way they probably want the Fed to solve the problem is by doing more of what caused it. I mean, printing even more money, even more QE, keeping interest rates even lower for longer. Creating inflation is not going to narrow the wealth inequality gap. It's going to widen it. It's going to increase the cost of living for average Americans while increasing uh, the value of the assets of the, the people who are at the top of the, uh, of, of the distribution, the, the 1% or the 1% of the 1%. So the, the senators don't even understand the Fed's role in creating the problem and then think that they can actually solve it by making it worse. And of course, they don't even understand their own roles in helping to create this problem because all of the rules and regulations that Congress passes, all the money that the U.S. government spends, all of this is making the U.S. economy less productive. And when you have a less productive economy, you create less wealth. You have a diminishment in the 
increase in the standard of living. So all these problems that the U.S. senators want government to solve, government has created. And the best way to solve the problems is to stop making them worse, to undo the damage that you've already done, not to continue to add additional damage to the existing damage. Also, I thought it was kind of funny that one of the things that Powell said as to why the U.S. economy has bounced back so quickly from COVID is that he said that the economy was so strong before COVID, right? We were in such great shape. That's the reason that we've recovered so quickly because we have such a fundamentally sound economy, which of course is complete nonsense. If we really had a strong economy prior to COVID, then COVID wouldn't have hit the economy nearly as hard as it did. And if we really had a strong economy, we wouldn't have needed all the artificial support of the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government. A strong economy could weather COVID on its own. The economy would have had the strength to deal with it. We would have had the savings to deal with the problem. It's precisely because the economy was so weak that COVID hit it so hard and that the Fed had to come back with so much artificial stimulus, why the government had to come in and and, and provide so much aid uh, to the economy. In fact, in reality, it was a bubble. The economy was a bubble and COVID was a pin. In fact, the air was already coming out of the bubble before COVID pin put an even bigger hole in it and it started gushing out. So Powell completely mischaracterized the nature of the U.S. economy prior to COVID, which is why he has no idea what's going on post-COVID. The reason that the economy imploded because of COVID was because it was a weak bubble. And the reason that it appears to have come back is not because of the economy being strong, but because of all the money the Fed is printing. But all of this supposed strength is artificial. It's all an illusion. It's a mirage. And when it wears off, it's going to lay bare uh, all the damage uh, that the Fed has done and that the U.S. government has done. In fact, you had another one of the senators there um, that was saying that, you know, we need to put more money in the consumer's pockets, that we need spending to drive economic growth, and the Federal Reserve should help uh, you know, give the consumers money so they can spend it. And again, of course, this is pure economic nonsense. And unfortunately, neither Powell nor Mnuchin knows enough about economics to correct uh, ignorant senators who don't know anything about economics, but they've got the cart before the horse. Spending isn't what grows the economy. It's a growing economy that enables spending. You can't spend if there's nothing to buy. So it's supply that creates demand. And where does supply come from? It comes from production. It comes from savings, investment, right? Hard work. We need to produce in order to consume. We can't simply consume and then the production is just going to magically appear. It doesn't work that way. All that happens when the Fed prints money is that prices go up. And right now we've seen prices going up of stocks and real estate and things like that. But very soon, the price increases are going to be highly concentrated in consumer goods. And that's when the average American is going to feel the sting of inflation even more than they're already feeling it. In fact, one of the most ridiculous comments was by Elizabeth Warren, again, trying to talk to, I guess, the Fed or Mnuchin, I'm not really sure, about the need to cancel student debt. And her point was that this would be great for the economy. If we could just cancel student debt, right, this would be good for the economy because now the students wouldn't be bogged down with all this debt anymore. 
So instead of paying off their debt, they could just go buy new stuff, right? They could spend more money on other things if they weren't uh, having to pay off their debts. And so let's just forgive these student loans. And this is going to be great for the economy. Now, if this really is the case, if we just help the economy by forgiving debt, why stop at student loans? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people that have a lot of credit card debt that is weighing down their spending. Why not forgive all that? Just cancel all the credit card debt. If everybody's credit card debt went to zero, wouldn't that help the economy? I mean, now people could really stop buying stuff. Let's say there's a lot of people who want to buy stuff, but they're maxed out on their credit cards. They can't buy any more stuff. Well, get rid of all that debt. Now they can start all over again. I mean, wouldn't that help the economy if we got rid of all this credit card debt? And, you know, why stop there? What about all the auto loans? I mean, look at all these people that are having to pay their auto loans, make car payments every month. I'm sure that eats into their discretionary income. Let's forgive all the auto loans. That's really going to get this economy humming. I mean, if people no longer had the burden of making their car payments, think about all the other things they could buy with all that money. And in fact, why stop at car payments because if getting rid of auto debt is good, well, getting rid of mortgage debt, well, that's even better. I mean, that's probably uh, the average homeowner's biggest monthly expense is his mortgage payment. I mean, that's really putting a damper on their other spending. I mean, having to spend so much money just paying off your mortgage. I mean, think of all the things the average homeowner could do if he didn't have a mortgage right? That would free up a lot of spending. So let's get rid of all the mortgage debt. I mean, we could have the greatest economic boom in the history of the world. Just get rid of all the debt. See, what Warren doesn't understand is what are the consequences of eradicating the debt? Because one person's debt is another person's assets, right? It doesn't just grow the economy to get rid of the debt. Because when you get rid of the student loans, what happens to the asset? What happens to whoever owns that asset that thought they were going to get paid and now they're going to get nothing? What kind of negative impact does the writing down of that asset lead to? Now, I agree, eventually, debts are going to have to be defaulted on because people can't pay. And that doesn't immediately lead to an economic boom. It's a cleansing. It generally happens in an economic bust that allows for a reset. But there's a lot of pain associated with those defaults and those bankruptcies. And the federal government can't alleviate that pain simply by just saying that nobody has to pay their debt. And now the Federal Reserve just prints up money and gives it to the lender so that the, the, the borrower's default is no longer the lender's loss. But hey, the nobody has to pay their student loans anymore. In fact, a lot of these student loans are now owned by the U.S. government, which means they're owned by the U.S. taxpayer. But there are big negative consequences to that debt forgiveness. And of course, the moral hazard of that is enormous. That will do even additional damage because if student loans are forgiven, how much more likely will people take on even bigger loans in the future knowing what's already happened, right? Knowing that, hey, don't worry about how much money you borrow because you're never going to have to pay it back anyway because some future politician is just going to forgive your loan as part of an economic stimulus package. I mean, you're an idiot if you don't take out a loan. In fact, a lot of people who are probably going to pay for college uh, using money that their parents had saved or maybe they would have a job 
the minute they see that loans are getting forgiven, nobody is going to want to pay for college. Nobody is going to want to be the sucker that actually buys something that you can get for free. Because if you borrow money to go to college and then your loan is forgiven, you got a free college education. Well, why would you pay for something that you can get for free? So there's actually going to be more damage done to the economy by outright forgiving all the student debt uh, than there is right now by the existence of the student debt. And by the way, the only reason the student debt exists is because of people like Elizabeth Warren. If it wasn't for the U.S. government, students wouldn't have all this debt because if the government didn't guarantee the loans, nobody would have made the loans in the first place. The only reason 18-year-olds were able to borrow all this money was because the government guaranteed the loans or the government made the loans. And the only reason colleges could overcharge so much for a lot of these worthless diplomas is because the government was uh, guaranteeing the loans. If people couldn't go to the bank and get a government-guaranteed loan, colleges couldn't charge such high tuition. They would have to lower their tuition to the point where people could afford to pay it without going into debt. But again, I've gone into this on many, many podcasts, explained uh, how the government created the student loan bubble, the college bubble. But now they want to blame capitalism for a problem that is 100% created by government. And now they want to espouse bigger government solutions to a government problem. When the real solution is easy, get out of the student loan business. Get the government completely out of guaranteeing or issuing student loans and force the colleges and universities to compete in the free market. So they have to lower their costs so that people can actually afford to buy their product. Of course, the other loans that they talked about were the PPP loans. And of course, the senators want to make sure that most of these loans are forgiven and so that nobody actually has to repay them because after all, right, repaying the loans would be a burden on a lot of these companies, a lot of these small businesses. So, you know, let's just forgive the loans. But again, let's forgive all loans. In fact, why do you even have to repay a loan? Why doesn't just government make it so loans never have to be repaid? I mean, think about how much more money people would borrow if they knew they didn't have to pay it back. I'm sure there's a lot of people that don't borrow money because they don't want to have to pay it back. But if they knew they didn't have to pay it back, there'd be a lot more people making loans. In fact, banks probably turn down a lot of potential borrowers because they realize they have no ability to repay the loan. Imagine if banks didn't have to consider the credit worthiness of the applicants, if they can lend money to people uh, and didn't have to worry about getting the money back because the people weren't even going to pay it back. Well, then everybody could borrow whatever they want. Right. And the economy would boom because everybody would have an unlimited source of money to do whatever they want. Right. Except the money would have no value. Right. The money would collapse. We'd have hyperinflation. The whole economy would implode. And that's exactly where we're headed, because Nobody that's in government or at the Federal Reserve has any understanding of basic economics. Everybody now believes that we can have whatever we want. In fact, what I'm hearing a lot of now is that what's just happened, we've printed all this money, we've had these huge deficits, and everything is great. And this proves conclusively that anybody like Peter Schiff, who has been warning about debt and warning about money printing and inflation, that we're all wrong, and what's just happened proves conclusively that there is no limit to how much money we can borrow. There's no limit to how much money we can print. We can have anything we want. We can have all the government we want so long as the Fed prints the money to fund it. Nobody has to pay higher taxes. Everybody can have all this free stuff. And there's never going to be any adverse consequences because what's just happened over the last few years and specifically what's happened since COVID proves conclusively that there are no adverse consequences to any of this policy. So people are 
completely oblivious to the major financial crisis that is lurking in plain sight just around this corner. And speaking about the oblivious, I want to talk too about Joe Biden's press conference today. He held a press conference in order to introduce America to his economic team, the highlight being Janet Yellen, who also spoke at this press conference. He's very excited about installing Janet Yellen, the clueless of the clueless at the Fed, uh, to now be the leader of the uh, Treasury Department. And, you know, Biden kept talking about how the government is going to help. He's from the government and, and, and he's here to help us, right? That's, that's, that's uh, Biden's job. And I suppose, you know, he's never heard that expression. The, the most dangerous words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. And those are the words that Biden repeatedly spoke during his press conference. In fact, he talked about how great uh, these individuals were. Although he also focused on their their gender and their ethnicity, which really should be irrelevant. I mean, I, I would be insulted if I were one of these nominees and uh, Biden was spending so much time focusing on my sex or my race, because uh, it makes it sound as if those were the factors that influenced uh, my nomination. I mean, Biden can at least pretend that he was trying to hire the best people and these are the people he chose, as opposed to letting everybody know that the people he picked are not necessarily the people he thought would be the best for the job. They were just the best woman for the job that he could find or the best African-American that he could find, right? Rather than just the best person, it was the best uh, from a particular class, meaning that I excluded people who I may have thought were better qualified because they were the wrong gender or the wrong ethnicity. So that is the wrong message that that uh, Biden should be sending. But you know what? At the end of the day, the people aren't going to care. The public is going to care that the whole economy collapses. But hey, at least the economic team was diverse. Yes, the economy is in shambles and everything is falling apart. But don't worry because we have a diverse uh, economic team. So hey, as long as that, as long as we got that, nothing else matters. But what Biden was focusing on is the strength of the recovery that his economic team was going to build, right? That our strong recovery was going to be built based on government uh, central planning, that his team were going to be the architects of this economic growth. But the problem is economic growth is not built by government. Central planners have never created anything. His team is going to do nothing. All they're going to do is interfere and stifle the growth that may have taken place if the government did nothing. Because growth comes from the private sector. And so if the government wants the private sector to grow, the best thing it can do is not interfere. And to the extent that the government is interfering, it can limit that interference by repealing rules and regulations, by cutting government spending so that resources are returned to the private sector. But Biden's going to do the opposite. They're going to be increasing rules and regulations. They're going to be making American business less efficient, less productive. They're going to be spending even more money through the government sector, depriving the private sector of the resources that it might otherwise have had available to it to actually grow the economy. So everything Biden was talking about that he was going to do to create a strong, vibrant, growing economy is going to achieve the opposite. 
He's going to centrally plan this economy into a, into a crisis. We're headed for an inflationary depression, and all the signs are there. And the fact that everybody now is so convinced that we've got nothing to worry about, that what we've just done, that the Fed printing all this money and these massive deficits, and the fact that there have been no adverse consequences to date, is positive proof that there will never be adverse consequences and that to the extent that there are any, it's way off in the distant future. All the conditions are ripe for a major crisis and for a major crisis to happen now, maybe 2021. And so I can't stress enough how important it is for everybody to be prepared, to make sure that you're completely out of U.S. dollars, that you're out of U.S. financial assets, out of U.S. stocks and bonds, that you build a portfolio either on your own or with my help of good quality international assets, global assets, good companies, good management, good non-dollar dividends, have exposure to the best inflation hedges in the world because inflation is going to be a worldwide phenomenon. It will be particularly um, problematic in the United States but it's going to be a problem worldwide. And so you need a worldwide solution. You need to have hedges in place in the best markets around the world. And you need to own gold. You need to own silver, real money. And you need to have exposure to the mining sector. You should be in the precious metals miners, but also you can have exposure to other uh, companies that own resources, raw materials that are going to be in short supply and in high demand uh, when we have this coming uh, U.S. dollar crisis. Well, before I forget, I've been meaning to mention we started a brand new YouTube channel, Shift Clips. And if you don't know about Shift Clips, and most of you don't because we only have 263 subscribers, subscribe to Shift Clips. In fact, if you can't find it, we've linked to it on the Peter Schiff Show uh, channel, which is now almost at 400,000 subscribers. So if you haven't subscribed there, uh, definitely subscribe and get me to that 400,000 milestone. But clearly, a lot of you need to subscribe to Shift Clips. And the purpose of Shift Clips is so we can post more content, shorter clips, but we don't want to put it on the main YouTube channel because a lot of these clips are simply condensed version of longer clips that have already been put up there. So we're going to take smaller segments from some of the podcasts and condense them down into smaller uh, topical uh, YouTube videos that will be great for helping you introduce your friends to my content. So the extent that you want to share some of my videos on social media, it would make sense to share the shorter shift clips rather than the longer podcasts or videos that are on the main channel. Plus, you might get a kick out of these clips yourself. It's always you know good to, to watch them. They're being prepared, and there's we add a lot of uh, commentary. So if you go there now, you'll see some of the videos that have already been put up. Uh, the few people, the 263 people, as I'm looking, that have already subscribed, obviously, they found the channel on their own. This is the first time I am publicly promoting the channel. And so hopefully everybody who is listening to this podcast, as soon as they're done, will go over to YouTube and subscribe to Shift Clips. And while they're at it, if they're not a subscriber to the Shift Report, my main YouTube channel, subscribe there too. But if you're already subscribing uh, at Shift Report, make sure to also subscribe to Shift Clips. 
Thank you.